Welcome back, everyone, to episode 160 of Let's Get Haunted. Hi, haunties. Allie here to tell you about a podcast that is very dear to my haunted heart, Monsters Among Us. If you're a fan of the paranormal, this is a show you're definitely going to want to check out. Monsters Among Us is an enormous collection of firsthand paranormal accounts that detail experiences with ghosts, cryptids, UFOs, and more, told in the witness's own voice. Witnesses like Julie, who drove past a car accident only to turn and realize a spirit had just joined her in the passenger seat. Or an anonymous caller who saw three strange entities in the woods moving in unison, then lost eight whole hours without explanation. Or Mac from Mississippi, who broke his back when he fell out of his tree stand, only to be nursed back to health by a sympathetic Sasquatch. Literally. These tales of the supernatural are carefully collected and curated by host Derek Hayes and shared in the form of audio recordings that get straight to the meat of each terrifying story. Derek cultivates an atmosphere that is equal parts spooky and nostalgic. Think Unsolved Mysteries meets Art Bell. The show is appropriate for all audiences and with a back catalog of over 300 episodes, it's definitely a binge-worthy podcast. So... Lock the doors, bolt the windows, dim the lights, and explore the world that is Monsters Among Us podcast. Available now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. And now back to your regularly scheduled haunting. This is our very first episode of Spooky Season, the very first episode of the month of October. Any haunties will know that this is our favorite time of year. And Nat and I are planning some extra special episodes for you this month, starting with today's episode because we are joined by a very special guest. Yes, I am so proud to introduce Emma from Real Life Ghost Stories. If you didn't know already, Real Life Ghost Stories is a podcast dedicated to real life paranormal experiences discussing hauntings, ghosts, death, aliens, psychology, skeptics, and everything in between. Real Life Ghost Stories releases episodes every Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday, with Wednesday and Friday episodes dedicated to the real-life ghost stories of the listeners. So you guys have to get out there and give them a listen. They're putting out content almost every day of the week, it seems. And we're so (laughs) happy to have Emma on the podcast. Emma, thank you so much for coming on. We're so excited to get haunted with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you guys. Can I just say before we even go any further that you guys should be doing voiceover work because your voices are so <laughs> beautiful to listen to. And it's not often I say oh, that, stop. but you, if you know, I know that you have other things that you do in your day to day life, but put voiceover work at the top of that list, please. <laughs> I would love to be a voiceover actress. I think about that all the time, but I don't think I have like, you have to have like a sexy, you know what I mean? Like movie voice, like, you know, put this deodorant on and never be sad again. You know what I mean? Like you have to like sell things. I love the um, movie guy voice where it's like one man. Yes. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking one about. One dream. <laughs> That's what we need to work on, getting our voices into that deeper octave. Right. You know what I just listened to, to bring it back around to you, Emma, because you are very intriguing as well. Um, you have a very lovely voice. But I was listening on my way to the studio today, your episode on Spike Island. Yes. And I was laughing really hard because in your intro, you were talking about the Meg, yeah. the the movie with Jason Statham, and your commentary about it was 
so on point. You were like, I don't know how seeing a man fight a shark could be unsexy, but Jason Statham <laughs> did it. Like he... <laughs> And look, I fancy the man. Like, I, I was yeah. kind of like, prior to the Meg too. I was like, he is hot. Like, he He's does hot. ridiculous films. I respect him for it. Yeah. He's kind of that brooding English, you know, gangster vibe. And I love it. But the Meg too, no. He is instant, <laughs> instant ick. I, I'm not, I'm not down with Jason Statham anymore. It's such a terrible film. I actually have like a small anecdote about Jason Statham, which I may never get to tell ever again. So I'm going to take my opportunity because it's here. One time, this is literally the dumb story, but I just have to get this out of my head. One time, my friend Chloe and I were walking through Beverly Hills Park and there's this guy like with his toddler and they have a tiny little dirt bike, like a really small dirt bike for a little toddler. And he's like teaching the toddler to do it and he's hot like he's fucking hot and me and my friend we were having like a deep conversation walking and you know when there's like a hot person you suddenly like stand up taller and like start talking differently and like your posture changes and where you're not going to make eye contact you're going to act like no this is just how I hold myself and carry myself around in the world tall and speaking with this high like projective voice out and then as soon as we finished passing whoever this hot man was we both like relaxed again and we were like oh my god that guy I was hot and she was like yeah I know that was Jason Statham and I was like are you serious that was the transporter and she was like yeah it was and he like smiled at us and gave us like a cool like I'm just a surfer and I do yoga and I teach my kid to do a dirt bike in Beverly Hills Park smile you know what I mean like he just had this like <laughs> charm about him and I'll never forget that I was like wow I didn't even put it together that he was like a famous person he just like radiated like hot person energy well if you if you want to see Jason Statham in a different light just watch the Meg 2 and I promise you all that hot person energy will disappear thank you thank you very much I'll have to do that to neutralize that uh, experience it is true though that when you see famous people out in the wild especially in Los Angeles you don't immediately recognize them for who they are but you do know that they're just ridiculously good looking it's like all the rest of us like normal people and then all of a sudden you see somebody like that's glowing. super super attractive yeah that's just like totally different i don't know yeah. what it is i don't it's know money. if it's like veneers it's money yeah <laughs> money yeah. it's like money and like sleeping in and relaxing yeah and they're just glowing like they're like a spotlight from a distance away it's gotta be i did it recently i was in um st pancras station in london which is like you know a big station in the middle of london and i saw this guy and I, in my head, I did that exact thing where I was like, oh, I know you from somewhere. And I sort of was like, and I went to go say hello to him because I was thinking, I know you. And then I could see this look of horror, like just <laughs> no. dawn over his face. And I was like, oh, no, shit, I don't know you. You're a really famous comedian. <laughs> oh, no. So I sort of was was making a beeline for him with my face being like, <gasps> And then I just went, oh, no, and turned completely in the other direction and <laughs> oh walked away. God. I'm sure he was thinking, please don't come and say hello to me. Please do not come and say hello to me. And I did not. Oh, luckily. no. That was very considerate of you. It is really I would have just run up at that point. It would have been too late to try to change direction. Would you just try to play it off, Alyssa? Like, oh, hey, like, did you get that uh, form I needed you to finish done? Like, act yeah. like you're my employee, right? Like, that's why I recognize hey. you. <laughs> You know, it's I haven't gotten your 1099 tax form in yet. And I just want to take this opportunity to let you know here. And then just like hand my business card and be like, call me. Yeah. <laughs> Wink. Yeah. That's the thing about celebrities, though, is like everyone's always like, oh, if you run into one, like just try to get them on your podcast. And I'm like, if I run into a celebrity, I'm going to try to act like I'm also a celebrity. Yeah. Right. Like you don't want to like act like you're the fan. Like you want to be like, oh, yeah, we're both celebrities. Like 
standing next to each <laughs> yeah. other in the train station hmm. this is normal <laughs> yeah. yeah well emma i have some questions that i'd like to ask you since you're our guest this episode first of all can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be one of the hosts of real life ghost story my story into podcasting is is probably a bit bit complicated a bit interesting so originally in the real world I was a secondary school teacher which is high school for you guys um so I taught high school for like years and years nearly 10 years and I um was also a safeguarding lead which means that I worked for like I worked with the police and with social services like social workers and stuff with families in crisis and that was my job for a long time I was actually doing a doctorate in education and I couldn't and I generally do theatre as well that's that's one of my great loves and I couldn't I didn't have the time to do it and I had just discovered podcasting and like I was listening to podcasts going hang on I could do this. <laughs> I could I could definitely do this. So I basically just wanted to do something a bit creative, but something that I could do in my own time and in my own space. And I just started podcasting and I knew that I was a spooky gal, you know. I've always been a spooky gal. I was always a weird kid. <laughs> and I was like, I know a lot of paranormal stories. And there has to be people out there that want to listen to ghost stories. And it turns out that there are people out there that want to listen to ghost stories. So now I'm a a full-time podcaster. That's what I do. And I do some theatre producing on the side. And most of the time I just tell spooky stories, which is great. (laughs) I'm so interested. What did you teach in high school? Oh, I taught English. Yeah, so English is is my subject. Oh, really? Wow, that's yes. fantastic. So do you feel like your experience with like literature, perhaps, or folklore, or access to like, I don't know, I, this is probably a question that's dumb, but are English classes in the UK just like, it's like literature, right? Like you're studying yes. like the English language. Okay, I don't know, because you guys like invented the language, so maybe it's something <laughs> but it's, totally different there. <laughs> it's also not a dumb question at all, because different countries teach things entirely differently, and you don't actually know how one country is going to teach it so English here is it's a lot of you know study of poetry and different novels and you know all that kind of stuff yeah like but not that old school that's kind of that's more um like university level but it would be things like um of mice and men like Steinbeck those kind of those kind of novels and stuff they'd be studying in secondary school and I do think I think having a love of reading and just liking stories right. and being a teacher in itself lends itself to being a podcaster because you're always performing when you're a teacher. Right. Always yeah. performing. Well, I mean, if you're good, it sounds like you were a good teacher. I would have loved to have a paranormal storytelling podcaster as my <laughs> English teacher. I mean, that would be like life changing. I actually kept it hidden for years, like for, for about the first two years of the podcast. I didn't tell anybody that I had a podcast. And uh, I eventually, when I quit my teaching job, um, my a lot of my senior management were like, oh, well, what are you going to do? Have you got a new job? And I was like, no, <laughs> no, I'm actually a podcaster. And they were like, sorry, what? You're yeah. what? And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm 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 done. So <laughs> I'm fine. I'm not going into teaching. And they and everybody was a bit like, hang on, you've had this whole other life the whole time. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> Wait, that's exactly like Alyssa. Yeah, I was about to say, that's literally nobody at my job, like my day job knows that I have this podcast. And I'd like to keep it that way because I don't want any, I don't like mixing worlds. I like keeping things very separate 
And then that way, no, I don't know. I don't like the idea of somebody that I work with having access to me after work, if that makes sense, by like listening yes. to a podcast or finding me on social media. Yeah, totally get it. And you also don't want people to be like, I heard what you said on the podcast the other day. It's like, ew, this is a whole other part of me that you don't need to know about. <laughs> Absolutely. <okay? laughs> yes. Like for me, I can compartmentalize my different interests into like these different categories that don't bleed over into each other. So if somebody's trying to talk to me, yeah, about like a haunted ghost while I'm in a field during a pepper harvest, I'm going to be like, I don't even know what to say to you right now. <laughs> like I'm not in that mode. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like if you want to say Bigfoot is hot on your podcast you want to say that without Joan in work being like Bigfoot yes. is hot really shut up Joan okay you don't yeah, get you it don't. exactly <laughs> exactly I'm so glad you get it absolutely yeah. so what's really interesting to me too is that so you're uh you're Irish correct you're originally from Ireland and we've dabbled a little bit in some Irish folklore we actually have oh, yeah. a person coming on the podcast later this month in October to tell a haunted story um who is from Ireland about fairy Mm -hmm. and the fae folk and I was wondering what Irish uh, piece of folklore or cryptid or spirit do you think is the best if you can even say that if you had to rank them (laughs) yes I can so I'm always really reluctant to talk about fairies because every time I do something goes wrong with the equipment with it's universal I don't know what I don't know what they do. Like literally, as I've just said that, my recording has gone all Uh-oh. strange. Oh no! Is it haunted? It's probably haunted. I think that's probably the only <laughs> reasonable excuse. There we are. So I I am very reluctant to talk about the fairies on the podcast, even though I absolutely adore fairy lore. It's one of my favorite things in the world. But fairy lore was a massive part of Irish life and Irish culture for many years. My grandmother, she died in her 90s, but she, you know, fairy lore was a massive part of her life. And for a lot of people, it still is. They will say, you know, you can't go into a fairy fort and you can't, you know, there's like fairy trees in the middle of fields. And there's a really great story, if any of your listeners want to look it up, about a road in Ireland. They were building this motorway or a highway, as you guys would call it. And they rerouted the the building of the highway because it was said to be fairy land that they were going to build on and local people were genuinely concerned if you build a road on this that road is going to be cursed and the fairies won't be happy and they rerouted it and that was only in i think that was only in the 2000s like it wasn't that long ago that that happened um but for me, my favourite part of Irish folklore is the Banshee. I, I just love Banshee stories. I don't know if you guys are familiar with her. Um, She is a... Wait, she's... it's one person? I thought a Banshee was just like a screaming yes. ghost. But it's a female person? Yes. Or a female ghost? Yeah, she's... She's not really a ghost. She is part of fairy lore. So she's more so seen as being part of the world of the fairies. And there's a lot of kind of different ideas about where she came from. There's the goddess Morrigan, who is the goddess of war. So they think that she might be sort of some sort of folkloric descendant of the Morrigan. Um, There's also, you know, different ideas about her being on the fringes of the fairy folk and fairy society as it was. And basically, she is an entity that is attached to the oldest families in Ireland, the oldest family names. And she will come to those particular families 
and she will wail and scream and cry when somebody is going to die. Oh. Yeah, so that is that is the story that has gone on for years, um, like for generations, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, that's been a part of Irish folklore. But the interesting thing is, is that there are multitudinous families in Ireland who will still say that they have a banshee to this day, including my best friend who has a banshee attached to her family. And I have been with her when she has had banshee experiences i didn't experience it but i remember we lived together and she came into my room and she said something's just happened and i need to tell you and i was like yeah okay what's wrong and sometimes the banshee screams and wails and cries another time she comes in the form of three knocks so it'll be a knock on your door or a knock from inside your house somewhere and she said somebody just knocked on my high window three times and there's nobody outside and I need to tell you because I think somebody in my family is going to die and I was like okay that's mental anyway the next morning she got a phone call to say that her aunt had passed away wow I have chills no I yes oh yeah no. I have like goosebumps that that's so oh that's crazy to me it's scary a lot of Irish people will say oh no no we don't we don't believe in that anymore however yeah. I know this family who have experienced this and it's it's quite you know especially in rural Ireland things like the banshee being attached to particular families is quite a common thing and interestingly there is like a historical reality to the banshee as well so death culture in Ireland is really interesting and we have a lot of really specific death ritual like we bring the body home and we keep the body in the home for a day or two and people from all over the community, they come to the house to see the body and they bring food and people drink and they celebrate and they sing. And, you know, there's there's lots of different ways that we um, celebrate death rather than than shy away from it. And one of the things that used to happen was Irish communities would often have um, a witch, mm. essentially, is what the what the kind of modern term for her would be but she would have been like a wise woman a woman who understood medicine and understood things like midwifery and um, those women often lived on the fringes mm. of society but they were known as keeners and what that meant was when somebody died it was their job to come into the house and they would wail and scream and sing and it allowed everybody in the household to release their own emotions so if people were struggling to cry if people were struggling to understand how to release those emotions this woman would come in and she'd sing at this basically this wild woman <laughs> would come in and sing and wail and dance and cry and then she would be generally paid in alcohol and it, it <laughs> continued until like the 1960s and then it was it was the catholic church were like oh this is all a bit pagan actually we we're not we're not massive fans of this and it was kind of put an end to in the 1960s we still maintained a lot of the tradition but there is a belief that this idea of banshees also was linked to the very real world um, ritual of having keeners who would come to houses when somebody died and just wail and scream and cry. And I kind of feel like that's my calling in life. And I missed it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> right, like a, like an outlet. Like you, yeah. Right? I That is fascinating to me because I've only heard banshees and there's like a saying here where they're like, it was screaming like a banshee. Yeah. Like someone was screaming like a banshee. It, there's no like denotion of it being a singular thing it yes. just sounds like a ghost that screams so i didn't really know the history which is actually incredible and really terrifying because it's like literally mm. a harbinger of death it's not just yes. you saw a ghost which fucking is terrifying anyways but this is like the worst type of ghost you could see because not only did you see a ghost now someone's going to die also yes 
and yeah. banshee the word in irish in in the language irish literally translates as fairy woman oh, wow so that's wow. that's what that word actually means yeah yeah that's fascinating. i'm on the same page as you though about man what a great gig to be the woman that goes to people's houses and like you just get to release all of the emotions that society thinks yeah. are not acceptable to release otherwise so you just get to do that and bring closure for people and help other people grieve and move on i don't know it's very interesting it is yeah i think it's fascinating i really like that idea someone once told me they were from louisiana and they were telling me there was a tradition down there sometimes when people die they'll have like a choir of women who are singing and crying and like have it's like very dramatic it's almost like a theater piece like they have tissues in their hands and they're like covering their faces and like tears and dancing and and kind of like following a procession the funeral procession but they're not part of the family they're like hired like you hire these professional crier like singer choir people i can't remember what it was called someone who's listening to this if you know what i'm talking about and you're like oh my god you're an idiot that's not louisiana that's like uh florida or something Yeah, yeah. yeah tell me it wasn't my fault someone else told me <laughs> that's really interesting i think it's it's a really powerful thing it's it's because it, it gives other people the permission almost to let out their emotions yeah it's inconvenient to lose your shit that's the thing is like once you start to lose your shit you don't know if you can get it back together like you got to go to work the next day you know what i mean like if i go like level 10 version of hell like just (laughs) screaming and crying and throwing up like how that's gonna take me a long time to get back to homeostasis yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Natalia, I'm very excited to hear what spooky tale you have planned for us today. And for those of you who might be joining us for the first time, maybe you're coming over because you're a fan of real life ghost stories and you want to see what's going on over at Let's Get Haunted today. You should know that Emma and I have no idea what story Nat is going to tell us today. That is how our show works. Nat and I will switch off every week telling each other a scary story that we've picked out the other person does not know what we've picked out and that way we can offer real-time commentary and reactions along with the audience so we are very pleased to have anyone here who may be visiting us for the first time and we hope you stick around okay oftentimes the more haunted a location is the more popular and sought out it becomes by tourists where there is a rumor of a ghostly apparition that haunts the halls There will also be a gift shop full of ghostly trinkets for sale. It seems as if the only thing ghosts like more than haunting is helping businesses thrive. This direct correlation between spookiness and success is often called upon by skeptics as a source of motive for a hoax. It's also the plot of many episodes on Scooby-Doo. But what would a skeptic say about a place so haunted that it's unavailable for the public to gawk at. This haunted location is thought to be so creepy that even the government had to get involved to protect its citizens. We are talking about the most haunted place in India, Fort Bangar. Have you guys heard of this fort? Or this place at all, Bonkar? I have not. Yes. Oh, you have? <gasps> you have? Wait, you have? okay. All right, Emma, tell us what you know or tell us how do you, well, I guess let's not spoil whatever Nat's going to tell us, but how do you know what this is? So, as you guys said in, in the beginning, I released like three episodes, four episodes of the podcast a week. So, I've, I, 
you know, gain a lot of information and then very quickly forget it. But I am aware that there that that this is the most haunted place in India. It is said to be cursed. I'm not going to go into details yeah. about that. And as Nat very rightly said, there is a governmental warning that nobody should visit here after dark. Yes, yes. So, okay, if you know some about this too, feel free as I'm telling the story to chime in because as I was telling Allie before we did this episode, this story, it's a very popular, like it's a the most haunted place in India or doted as the most haunted place in India. So it's a very popular tourist place, but you can't actually go in because there's a guard that won't let you go in there because it's like too haunted and the government like is not trying to get people haunted. And a lot of the articles and a lot of the source material about this place is in Hindi because that's like the language that most people in India speak. And some of these articles were translated or I could tell that they were just like fed through AI or something Mm. like that to translate them. So I wasn't really sure what I was reading because some of the translations would be different than the others. I mean, Ali's a translator. So you know how like if one person translates something as a bucket and the other person translates it as a container and someone translates it as a cup or a chalice like even though those are all technically something that holds water they all have a very different cultural significance and so some of these stories I was reading I was like I don't know what the fuck is going on here because I don't know who's translating this but I happen to have access to a translator in my life not a professional but my mom speaks five different languages she's Punjabi she's from Pakistan which is on the border of India but the Punjab is like more of a tribe so it goes throughout parts of India and Pakistan and parts of Bengal I think so it's not really confined by like the lines of the country so a lot of the cultural things that my mom has been exposed to are from Afghanistan and Pakistan and India and just like that entire part of the world where that tribe is is located so i asked her if she could help like translate some of these youtube videos and some of these articles which i don't even know like what the fuck it was guys like i don't even know what i was reading at all so we're hoping that my mom did a good translation here so i don't i don't know we're counting on rifat to be our translator here so i'm gonna do my best i can but emma if you want to chime in if you know some stuff that i don't then i would love to hear it so with that said Bangar is a village that is in the Rajasthan state of India. It was a very ancient place, but no longer has like the same cultural influence that it used to because there was a great tragedy that happened hundreds of years ago. And so we had like this bustling town. There were over 9,000 homes there. There were over 10,000 people there. There was like a bazaar. It was a city. It was a city and it was a huge settlement. But what happened was all of a sudden, people just stopped living there. It seems like daily life just stopped and culturally this place just sort of fell apart. It was no longer producing any trade or taking in any trade. And this is all just coming from like archeological digs or talking to anthropologists. And they have all just said like, you know, we can read from texts, we can read historical accounts from people. But as we've talked about on this podcast before, the victors, right history so we're not quite sure what exactly happened we can only really go by what other people are telling us about this place i'm gonna send you guys a picture right now of where this is located well natalia is getting that picture sent i just want to say so far because i think i'm the only one of the three of us who has no idea 
about this location. So I'm just going to give my guesses. This is kind of reminding me of the Roanoke colony in the U.S. where you had this really successful flourishing colony and all of a sudden, you know, somebody leaves to go get supplies from, I believe it was England, and then they come back on their boat, and that takes forever back in the day, and they come back, and this settlement is just completely abandoned, and they can't find where their family is or where the people moved to, and so now all of this mystery surrounds it. That's kind of what this is giving right now. This is giving me um, Roanoke vibes. So I sent you two photos. The first one, the black and white one, is a photo of the area that is today India. And you can see in the top right corner, it says Bangar. Mm -hmm. And then below is just a modern Google map that I went on and found the fort and tagged it. So you guys can see that. Interesting. you want to describe the location Sure. So if you guys would like to follow along with us, you can head over to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram and we will have the photo album posted, which we call a photo dump that has all of the key images from this week's episode. So you can scroll along in real time and see the images that we are also seeing. So Nat has sent two pictures, two screenshots. One is of kind of like an ancient, a more ancient looking map, and it's in black and white. And then the other one is the more modern Google Maps map. And it looks like Bangar Fort is in the upper middle portion of India. Is that correct? Yes. So this is kind of a, this is kind of to fuck everyone up. So there's two fucking places called Bangar. Yeah, I... It looks different. Yeah, it was really fucking annoying when I was trying to research this because they're both haunted locations oh, with really? a bunch of ruins. <laughs> yes. One Bangar, B-A-N-G-A-R-H, is like on the border of India and Nepal. And Bangar Fort, which is B-H-A-N-G-A-R-H, is in the north of India. But it's Really confusing, too, when you're reading these, like, chat GPT articles that who, who the fuck knows who wrote it, and they're talking about one place, and you're like, wait, this is, seems this seems like a totally different story than the other place that I just was reading about. And so that's, like, another layer to this, I feel like, in the translation. So I'm just adding that in there because maybe someone who's, like, more familiar with this than I am can, like, help back me up. <laughs> I don't know. It was very confusing. But... I was able to find out specifically about Bangar Fort, the haunted location that we're talking about. Bangar Fort is a 17th century fort that's located about 150 miles outside of Delhi, India. In the 17th century, Bagar was a flourishing town during the height of the city's reign, but the evidence points to a sudden destruction of the city occurring around 1720. It seems as if a great tragedy befell the town and the city was decimated and no attempt to rebuild appears to have ever happened. The history appears to be shrouded in a veil of mystery. The palace was built by one of the nine Ratnas of Emperor Akbar's court. Raja Madho Singh built the palace for his son, Raja Man Singh I. The palace was beautiful, and it protected the inhabitants from dangerous enemy forces that were often lurking outside of the city. It was a powerful settlement with three forts and five large gates that guarded the palace and the entire city of Bangar. So I'm going to send you guys some photos now of Bangar so you can see. This first one is a temple that is still standing, and this is taken from today or modern times, if you wanted to describe that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it is beautiful. 
and ornate and it is a serious work of architecture and it's so it's sort of you've got this beautiful stone structure that clearly a lot of time and money and effort went into building that is completely surrounded by Mm -hmm. these green hills it looks absolutely incredible yeah i i wish that we had stuff like that in the u.s it's it's ornate is the exact word to use it's not even it yeah. It's not even like a building at that at this point. It's like a sculpture, like a work of art. It's so intricate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and somebody you can see by this somebody built that to say, "I have loads of money. Yeah. <laughs> Look at all my money." It's a it's a very opulent display of mm. wealth. I'm glad that you brought that up because we will talk about that again in a moment. The second picture is a picture of the road that's going up to the gates. And on either side of the gates, there's like a little plaque, if you guys can see that. And yeah. on those plaques, it talks about how this is the most haunted place in India. Really? Yes, which I thought that was interesting because usually when you go to like a historical spot, it'll be like, oh, yeah, like yeah, general like German Furman came through here and like knocked all this stuff down. And it was like a great tragedy. And uh, this was put up by the Historical Society of U.S. or something. And that's it. It doesn't say like there's ghost of the people who died lurking in the hills in the shadows. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I think it's it's kind of an interesting thing that the community and the government and the people who are working to preserve this space sort of honor this like cultural aspect of it as being haunted that makes me think there's one of two possibilities with that if a government is acknowledging that something is haunted then either they are doing so to discourage people from going there or they are doing so to encourage people to go there in some sort of um effort to like increase tourism those are those are the two things i could think of the Mm. two possible reasons to include that on a plaque and i think what else is interesting from a kind of historical and maybe contextual perspective is that 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 second picture where you have the the gates of Bangar Fort there it was clearly incredibly heavily fortified clearly they were ready for intruders either because intruders had come along or because they were expecting intruders to come along because you can see you've got these really thick stone walls and then slits in like slit windows that I think were generally used to, for archers to fire out yeah. of. So mm-hmm. they, they were ready for for invaders to come and, you know, try and take over the fort or whatever. Good point. Right. And I think it also speaks to, at the time, this was like a war, you know, these were like uh, warlords that were mm. in control of these towns. You would have a king or some other royal person, one of the ratnas of the um, emperor, which translates to jewel. So it's like the emperor's jewels, which I thought was very interesting as well to have that as a title for somebody. Um, and they they would be in charge of taking care of everyone in the city. I mean, it was like, do we call that feudalism? Yeah. Right? So it was like kind of like that. You kind of um, had to depend on somebody to protect you from these giant forces that would come out. And I mean, I guess either way you were like being colonized. It was either like by the person that was already there or by like the next person. But I just wanted to add some anecdotes and now I realize that I sounded offensive. So I'll stop talking. (laughs) The third picture is of uh, looking from the palace out over the, what would have been Bongar. So you can see from the highest point in the palace where the king lived 
what he would be able to see out over. And the last picture is, I don't know if you guys can tell what that is. It looks like just a bunch of stones knocked over, right? Yeah. Just looks yeah. like, yeah, like broken wall or something. So that is the ruins of the palace. That is what is left oh. of it. It fell to ruin because of some tragedy that befell that I am about to get into. But it's kind of a foreboding photo. It doesn't even look like it fell to ruin. Like it looks like it was smashed to pieces. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it doesn't. It, it it looks purposefully destroyed. Yeah. Emma, yeah. Some of our listeners are blind. So it. I'm going to just do like a quick description here for them. So if you can imagine all of these chunks of stone that look approximately the same size, but they're all different colors and textures. Mm. So it just Mm. looks like some giant creature came. I don't know, like, you know, a cartoon of a caveman where you know they have like a big club it looks like somebody just took a baseball bat or a club some giant and just smashed this building into bits and pieces it's very interesting looking and then all of these pieces rather than be um, taken to another location or try to rebuild whatever was there before they're all just laying there and it's very pretty it almost it reminds me of like fruity pebbles or something like a cereal <laughs> that has all these different colors but they're all approximately the same size yeah and I wanted to add to like the first picture that we saw of the temple that you guys were talking about how it was so ornate and beautifully carved that was sort of in the same style that the palace would have been in so you can see when you're looking at that picture of the rubble there are pieces that look like at one point they were part of a sculpture or like mm. ornately carved but then you know like Alyssa says it looks like now it's just fruity pebbles So it's really interesting that Emma said that this was like a display of opulence and wealth because that is kind of in juxtaposition to our main character of this story. Emma, do you know what a sadhu is? No, I don't. Allie, do you know what a sadhu is? No, and I I couldn't even hazard a guess because I don't know what language that's in. I don't, I have no idea. Okay, so... I'm going to, I didn't know what it was either, but then as I started reading about it, there were all these terms that I've heard before. And so let me know if some of these terms stick out to you guys, because I feel like some of them are popular brand names. Tell me if I'm wrong. So a sadhu is someone who practices a sadhana, which is an ego transcending spiritual practice. The word sadhana translates to methodical discipline to attain desired knowledge or goal. Does any is any of this ringing a bell? No, no. But I, uh, yeah. I'm gonna keep going. A sadhu might meditate for days on end via extreme devices such as yoga, ice baths, chanting mantras, or even forms of self-flagellation. Many sadhus are yogis, but not every yogi is a sadhu. Any of these words ringing bells? I mean, it sounds like your fiance, like who's just constantly (laughs) torturing himself with ice baths and like going out into the wilderness. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. trying. It also reminds me a little bit of, um, and this is just because I have no experience with that part of the world. So I'm just relating it to what I know. Natalia and I met in college at um, a Catholic college that practiced um oh my gosh Jesuit it was a Jesuit Catholic college and the Jesuits I know have like their whole 
thing, from what I recall, is that they are supposed to be philosophers, the philosophers of Catholicism. And so they will go out into the wilderness or they'll starve themselves or they'll meditate for years. They'll go on these really long sabbaticals in the middle of nowhere. And then through that like deprivation of creature comforts, modern comforts that Mm -hmm. all of us enjoy, they are supposed to have these epiphanies. And then when they come back and join the fold again, they're supposed to share those epiphanies with their, um, it's not a cloister, that's for nuns, but whatever, their group, the Jesuit group. And then if it's like good enough, if you've come up with a good enough philosophical epiphany, you are a Jesuit. It sort of reminds me of that maybe where like you're trying, the whole goal is to yeah transcend like basic human needs and reach your Mm -hmm. higher self in some way is that accurate that is very accurate but it's also not accurate this is like a very (laughs) this is a very complicated term so um but yeah you're kind of on the right path so a sadhu is not necessarily someone who just does yoga it's someone who might practice yoga in an attempt to have this ego transcending uh, experience that kind of shatters their ego and allows them to see what's beyond to reach some sort of like spiritual goal or form of um, knowledge attainment. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going because it, it, go, it keeps going deeper and deeper and you're like, I think I know what this is, but I fucking have no idea. Okay. <laughs> so a sadhu's life is devoted to achieving moksha, which is liberation from the cycle of death and rebirth. I believe in Western culture, we might say that this person is trying to reach like quote unquote enlightenment, but like Mm. I said, it's a lot more complicated than that. A sadhu is specifically a cultural effect of Hinduism, Buddhism, or Jainism. And a sadhu is so complicated to explain because it's really more of like an umbrella term used to denote someone who's seen as a really disciplined holy person or a religious Mm. ascetic. Do you guys know what an ascetic is or asceticism? No, I don't. No. No. I didn't know what this was either. But then like when I started reading about it, I was like, oh, I've seen people like this. Like I kind of get it. So asceticism is a lifestyle that requires the participant to reject all worldly possessions. And oftentimes people who ascribe to asceticism don't own any property. They're extremely frugal and they even take an oath of poverty. Someone who practices asceticism doesn't engage in any worldly pleasures at all. This means that they give up all worldly addictions like meat, alcohol, sugar, sex, sometimes clothing, or even food in general. And I know if you're like, well, how do they give up food and survive? Sometimes they don't. Many ascetics will spend their day fasting and meditating in an attempt to reach redemption and draw closer to their spiritual goal, closer to God, closer to whatever it is that they're trying to attain. So basically, a sadhu is someone who's rejected society and renounced all of worldly life. And because of their extreme sacrifice to reach liberation from the cycle of birth and death, the two things that define every human, they're seen as having extraordinary spiritual insight and in some cases mystical powers because it's like they're almost not human, right? Like the the two things that define what a person is is that we're we're born and we die. We have mortality. And this is a person that's trying to get away from that. And then the second thing is that they're rejecting society and everything that it means to be a functioning sort of member of society. I am going to send some pictures of some sadhus so you guys can kind of get a visual image of what this person might look like. But do you guys know anyone who's kind of like this, like ascetic light? 
sort of. Yeah, I've known people. So I also went to a Catholic college and I've known people who have gone into like the Catholic priesthood and from there gone to more extreme versions mm-hmm. of um devoting your life to Catholicism, which would include kind of vows of poverty, chastity and, you know, piety and, and giving up all worldly possessions and worldly vices I suppose they would have been called so I, I I've experienced versions of it yeah right yeah I you know it's kind of interesting that it's called asceticism because it's kind of like so it sounds so similar to aesthetic like yeah. aesthetic which is kind of the opposite like an aesthetic is all about like creating a look or like crafting a vibe and a lot of times it like goes hand in hand with consumerism and um this is kind of like the opposite of that because you're trying to reject all of those things. So I sent you guys two pictures. The first one is of an Indian man who is an ascetic. He's also a sadhu. And the second one is of uh, a Nepalese man who is a sadhu. If you guys want to describe those. Sure, I'll take the first photo and then Emma can take the second. So in the first photo, we see a man who is sort of lounging on he's outdoors in front of a stone and wood building that looks to be some sort of religious building if I had to guess Mm -hmm. and then he's lounging on this stone bench with one arm kind of propped up on what appears to be a statue and then he's wearing a lot of beads he has yellow robes on Mm -hmm. and his face is painted um if if you can imagine like the lucha libre masks where mexican wrestlers um they wear these like kind of skin tight masks yeah that only cover half of their face it looks like that but in face paint so he he has this yellow face paint kind of like also the batman mask for those who are familiar with that and then the Mm. middle of this yellow face paint has a red triangle right above both of right in above his nose so in between his eyes but above his nose there's this red triangle and he has a beard and he's just chilling i know he's kind of like in a sleigh position i thought yeah, that when i has. saw him he's yeah. like reclining well like he's reclining over a stone and has his hand behind his head kind of like what is that did you do you guys know that guy from seinfeld like there's a famous picture of him and he's george like costanza yes the george mm-hmm. costanza pose yeah um, but mm-hmm. yeah he's like a sadhu like a religious spiritual man emma he's do you want to take that slain. second picture and so this it? the second one is is really interesting so you have a man and he is sitting cross-legged on a blanket and it looks like it may be on a street mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be kind of at a religious building but it, it may well be and he is wearing like lots of beaded bracelets on both of his arms and he has long hair and a long beard Mm -hmm. and he has a book in front of him some sort of book and it seems to be perched on some sort of red cloth Mm -hmm. so it kind of denotes that that book is obviously important at least to him and he's wrapped in a yellow shawl that has some sort of red writing on it now I can't I can't read or decipher what what it says it's in a different language and he's burning incense as well next to him and then on the wall next to him is a picture of what appears to be a I'm going to say a female goddess yes. and she is her skin is blue and she has some sort of a trident mm-hmm. and a drum 
and obviously I would imagine that this is perhaps a goddess that he has dedicated his life to or worships but it's 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 quite different tonally to the first picture right and um, there's an element of sort of almost luxurious lounging to the first picture which right. is probably just to do with that sleigh pose yes <laughs> whereas whereas the second one is you can sort of in a way you can see what this man has given up in order to pursue this life. Yes, and I'll I'll add um too, I the reason I chose those two photos is because I think that they both demonstrate very well how Asadu is it's a wide range of things. So the first man, he looks healthy, he's got a little bit of a belly on him, looks like he's, you know, eating every day, getting his 8 hours of sleep and occasionally getting uh like his face done with the the paint, you know. Um, in some sort of like spiritual cultural practice where the second photo really I, I'm assuming this man has taken an oath of poverty it looks like he lives where he is sitting um, he lo- appears as if he hasn't bathed or had a haircut or taken um, any sort of like steps for his own personal hygiene in a really long time mm. it seems like he's just been meditating right there for days on end without eating he's very very uh, underweight on on the brink of collapse i would say it's a very striking photo and so i think he's been fasting for a really long time but the reason that i chose those two photos is because those are two people are both sadhus and even though they're on very different spiritual paths and they're very different physically and they have different clothing on they're both on a path to some sort of uh, spiritual attainment or goal. And then the third picture that I just sent you is a group of sadhus who are walking through a temple in India. If you guys want to describe that group. Sure. So there appears to be four people and they are wearing red and gold robes. They have walking sticks. Three out of the four are wearing some type of head covering. The fourth, I can't really tell because he's further in the background. But they all appear to have some level of face paint on as Mm. well. And they're just walking around near what looks to be a religious building, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's again, for the little corner we can see, yeah, it looks ornate. So Natalia's saying it's a temple. And I definitely believe that just from the corner that I'm seeing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're just walking around the temple outside. So there was, according to the legends of Fort Bongar there was a local sadhu who was named Guru Balu Nath. And this guru lived an oath of poverty, meditation, and rejection of all worldly pleasures. Guru Balu Nath spent many hours each day deep in meditation, sitting still for many days on end, and he was known throughout the entire community very, very well for his extreme meditation because he was always meditating, always wearing the same thing. It was like a fixture of the community. But the spot where the guru meditated happened to be prime real estate. You see, the king had plans to build a grand fortress right where the guru had meditated. Not wanting to upset this holy man, because people assumed that these sadhus had a closer relationship with God and therefore had special powers that not every single person had, the king asked the guru if he could build this fortress near his meditation spot. And the king's name was Raja Madho Singh. So this Raja asked the guru, can I build this fortress near your meditation spot? I really 
need your permission. I'm hoping you're going to say yes because I'm not trying to get haunted. (laughs) So the guru agrees to let this king build this fort under one condition. The fort's shadow could not touch him. Could this be because as a sadhu, the shade of the fort would provide pleasure for the guru and interrupt his path to Moksha? Could it be that the guru enjoyed the sunshine and didn't want the shade of the fortress to take his only earthly pleasure? Or perhaps the shade from the fortress, which was a symbol of worldly pleasure and societal hierarchy, was in direct contrast to the guru's own philosophy. Whatever the case, The guru was firm in his condition. The fort shadow should not touch him. And if it did touch him, the entire town would be destroyed. The king, who was overjoyed with this simple condition from the sadhu, agreed to the condition that his new fortress's shadow would not touch the guru. He built a fortress with a shadow that did not violate his contract with the sadhu. The sadhu was able to meditate in peace, and happiness went on throughout the kingdom. Until, one day, a successor of the king could not resist adding giant columns to his fort. This new king was warned against increasing the height of the fortress because it would violate the original king's promise to the sadhu. But the successor, wanting to increase his security and notoriety, built his high fortress anyway. The columns went up high over the sadhu's own meditation spot, and a shadow was cast directly on top of the guru's home. A great quaking occurred, and the entire town was turned to ruins in an instant. Only the bottom part of the fort, the portion that did not cast a shadow on the guru, remained standing. All of the roofs were taken off of the village, and all that was left was just walls and pieces of the village that didn't violate the original contract. Mm. That is the first legend of this curse. What do you guys think about that? Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. I Because it, it even if, you know, we're talking about a lot of things that to me are very foreign, like the concept of a sadhu I had never heard of before. Um, I don't know anything about like the cultural significance of those temples but or fortresses. But we can all relate to these ideas. And Emma, I'm excited to hear what you have to say as an English teacher. Uh, like it's human hubris or, um, you know, ego getting in the way of, mm-hmm. of something simple. Like how hard is it to just be like, okay, I can build whatever I want to build as long as it doesn't cast this long shadow. And then, of course... Of course, somebody comes along that just can't resist, thinks they're too important, wants to show off how powerful and rich they are, and they violate that contract. So I I am loving this story so far. And there's an element of um, sort of social moral compass as well with this story, where there is clearly a cultural respect for these people who embark on this lifestyle and they give up whether it's their earthly pleasures, whether they take a vow of poverty. And I'd imagine that for a lot of people that's seen as kind of a deep connection to the self and to the soul and to the land, to the the, to the world around you that made you. And as a result, that person becomes like the conduit for those for those kind of primal human experiences. And if I've learned anything from stories like this, it's that if there's a spooky mystical guy in the forest that's telling you not to do something, you just don't do it. Okay. You just don't do it. Right. Don't question it. Just don't do it. Right. Yeah. You you don't go down the scary path. 
You don't knock on the door of the scary cottage and you don't build your fortress high enough that they're suddenly in shadow and will (laughs) burn your fortress to the ground or whatever it is that happens. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. And I think there's also like an element of, I don't, There maybe there's a word for this that you guys can tell me, but it's like when you're trying to take power away from God, like in a sense, the sadhu was saying Mm. he has this direct line to God because of the, uh, the lifestyle that he has. And he's saying, I'm telling you that you'll be protected. Nothing bad will happen to you, even if you don't build this giant fortress. But like the next king was thinking, oh, well, there's enemy forces. I need people to know that I'm like respected and I need to build it even higher to increase my own protection rather than sort of just trusting in in God to protect the kingdom instead of like the king protect the kingdom. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's definitely uh, religion is like a huge part of this story for sure. So there's also an alternate version of the curse that I found as well. And it seemed like sources were like literally split 50-50 on which one of these curses existed. It seems like a lot of the sources too were like, here's the first story. All right, now here's the second story. So I'm going to tell you guys the second story too. Okay. Another version of this legend is that there was a priest And sometimes this priest is called a tantric. Sometimes the priest is called a necromancer. Sometimes the priest was kind of referred to as being in conjunction with sort of like dark forces. So this priest, whatever you want to call them, was a practitioner of quote unquote dark magic. This magical priest happened to fall in love with the most beautiful woman of the kingdom. And wouldn't you guess she's a local princess and her name was Ratnavati. Ratnavati was so beautiful that every single man in the kingdom wanted to marry her and she had all of these eligible suitors. She had people lining up to marry her, to take her hand. She had people coming from far and wide across the entire kingdom. So she was a very powerful woman. And our priest sees her and he's like, she's amazing, I have to have her. But he knows that there's no way she's gonna pick him when she has all of these other suitors that have more and can do more for her than he can. The priest decides to make a love potion that will turn the woman in love with him so it'll turn the odds in his favor. The priest put a potion in an oil that was intended to be used during a massage on the princess. But somehow the princess learned of this dark plot and when the oil was presented to her for the massage, she took the jar and she threw it onto a large rock which smashed the potion and the priest's dreams along with it. The fates had spun out of the priest's control. The large rock on which the potion was smashed began to quiver, and it tumbled onto the priest, crushing him. As the priest lay dying, he cursed the entire village, vowing that the town would be reduced to destruction and desolation as he had been by the princess that he loved. According to the folklore, The priest promised as he was dying that all of Bangar would be cursed and not a living soul would be able to live a peaceful life there. The town, after this fucking weird haunted dude was dead, started rejoicing because he was gone and the princess had foiled his dark plot. But the very next year, tragedy befell Bangar. A great battle was fought between the armies of Ajabgar and Bangar. The ruler of the town was defeated at the hands of the enemy. His entire army was killed and the villagers of Bongar were massacred. Nobody's sure what happened to the princess, but the legend states that the princess still wanders the ruins of the village, 
stuck in limbo here on Earth as she's unable to accept her defeat and tragedy that befell her citizens. According to the lore, the screaming villagers of Bongar can be heard throughout the fort after dark, forever stuck in a loop, reliving the night that the city was massacred over and over for eternity. Locals believe that the town was never rebuilt or re-inhabited because of this dangerous curse that still haunts the cities and its ruins. Uh, okay, I will say I like the first story better for sure, and I'll tell you why. I don't like that somehow it's the princess's fault and she has to be stuck in this loop just because she didn't let this creepy priest use his massage oil on her. Okay, like, I, d I reject <laughs> the second story. I'm going with the first. Emma, what are your thoughts? Listen, right, so a whole town perishes because some incel priest is like, yeah. I want to massage you and she says, no, are you joking me? Like yeah. if that if this isn't a lesson through time about how some men will make the world burn if they don't get the woman they think they deserve. Yes. Oh, it just makes me so angry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was like interesting how he was like, Oh, he loves this person so much, so he made uh, an oil for her or whatever and I was like, I don't think that's love. Yeah. No. I don't think love is forcing someone to marry you no. who's like not interested in you yeah. at all. It sounds like yeah. you know he was just like watching her from the shadows. I'd be interested to know if she even was aware of his existence or not. Like if they'd ever even had a conversation or like if he'd ever even broached the topic with her before. It sounds like he just jumped straight to like, I know she's not going to like me because I'm not wealthy. Not because I'm a creepy guy that wants to massage her, but because I'm <laughs> no, not wealthy. Not. Yeah. So I'm just going <laughs> to lean in to the stereotype that I'm trying to avoid. And I'm just going to, um, yeah, I'm just going to get some weird enchanted massage oil and see what happens. Like, you couldn't go up to her first and be like, hey, I'm a priest. I know that like maybe that's not desirable, but I'm like a great guy. I'm a family man. I I can you know I. But he was care a necromancer. Yeah. <laughs> like like how much of a of a family man right. can you be when you like raise people from the dead? Well, here's the thing: if any of our children die and I'm a necromancer, you don't have to worry. I can bring yeah. them back. He could have spun it. He well, could have done that's way true. better of a job of like self marketing himself creating um some sort of persona that he could have like pitched himself to her as but instead he went straight for enchanted massage oil yeah not the vibe yes <laughs> so while i do love the idea of ghosts stuck on a loop which we've talked about before just because i think it's very spooky we've talked yeah. about stone tape theory before on our show that idea i think is cool but if in order to get to the stone tape theory of ghosts living out their final moments over and over again, like an echo of their former selves on a loop. If to get to that point, I have to be on board with an incel priest, then I, I can't do it in good conscience. <laughs> so according to this, this curse, all of the homes in this entire area are roofless. There's no house like anywhere near here that has a roof over the head of the house. There's even some local villagers or whatever who are living on the outskirts of this town who are kind of like, you know, uh, doing like sort of their own thing, like nomadically or whatever. And they don't put roofs on their establishments. Some people say that's because it's impossible to construct a roof. Like there's this curse that happens as soon as someone builds 
builds a roof, it collapses. And there's been in the past, according to the local lore, roofs in the area have collapsed in and killed people when they do put a roof on something. Part of the local lore is that the reason that all of this, um, the, the homes in this area don't have roofs isn't just because they you know, fell into ruin. It's because you literally can't construct a roof at all. Some people are like, well, that's just because it's ruins and it's all falling apart. It's not really haunted. But the Archaeological Survey of India, or the ASI for short, they have signs all over that are like, you can't come in here after dark, after 5 p.m. You're not allowed to come in here. Some people say that's because there's been incidents of people getting lost and, and like dying because it's like ruins, you know, you need to be able to see where you're going. But other people are like, no, it's the curse. The curse killed them. So there's like literally armed guards that are standing outside and dogs that are that will not let you enter. And then, you know, if it's, if India is anything like America, when you tell people they can't go do something, there's going to be a bunch of teenagers who are like, we got to go do it. So there's still kind of like a culture of people wanting to go in there after dark and they kind of like have to sneak in. But sometimes bad things happen to these people who sneak in there after dark. One of the stories of these people who snuck into the fort after dark is that there were three people who decided that they were going to go and they're going to spend the night there after sundown. So they bring a torch with them because you can't see anything there's no lights and as they're walking around with his torch looking for stuff one of the guys falls down deep into this well that he couldn't see and his friends are able to rescue him out and they rush him to the hospital but all three of them on their way to the hospital get killed in a car accident and die there's another story about a group of friends who are like sightseeing. As they're sightseeing, they see the ghost apparition of a boy who's in one of these houses. The house that they could see had like a door and a window with bars on it. And they're like looking through it and they can see the boy in there, but they never saw the door open or close. And then when they go to look into the house, the boy's not in there and it's impossible for him to have gotten out because there was like a door and grills on the window. So there, someone's figure in there but then when they went to go look in there was no one there and there's like impossible for them to get out so i don't know i went on youtube like trying to find first person accounts of people going to bonkar fort and my mom watched this video which i'll insert some of her translation um here in post so it's from this youtube channel called pw emotions he has 399,000 subscribers and the name of the video is my real story of bongar fort Haunted. Story hai Bhangar ki. This story is about Bhangar. India's most haunted place. India's most haunted place. He says there were all guys in that car and they said, let's go to this Bhangargal place. So in his story, he says that him and his some friends from college, they were all on like a road trip and they had gone recently to this town that was outside of Delhi and it took them a long time to get there. He said they were coming back from the Mandar, which is a Hindu temple. He says it was past midnight. So when they were on their way back, all of the lights were off and they come to a fork in the road. And the fork in the road says like you can either keep going this way to go to Jaipur, which is where they were headed to, or you can go to this haunted fort. But it says haunted, like keep out, closed after 5 p.m. Like do not take this road because it's haunted and it's closed. And so their friends are like, well, we got to take this road. 50% of the 
He says 50% of the people in the car were in favor of going, the other were scared. Half of them are like, no, fuck that, I'm not gonna go on it. Like, if we're not gonna do it, it's too scary. We're not supposed to go. And the other half is like, no, we have to go. It's gonna be so fun, whatever. And finally they convince half of them to go. And so they go down this like dirt road and they show up and they see a guard. He says when they got to the gate, there was a whistle. The guard is standing with like a flashlight and there's a bunch of dogs around him. He's standing next to a sign that's like, you can't go here past 5 p.m. So the guys like walk up to this guy and they're like, hey, we're all best friends. We went to college here in India. We like really want a tour of this place. Like, could you give us a tour? And the guy is just like stone faced, like pissed off. Like, no, it's closed after 5 p.m. It's dangerous. Get out of here. And the guys are like, okay. And then they decide to sneak in. He says there's five of us. The ghosts won't attack us if we go together. And so they're like walking along the outside of this and they can't see anything. It's pitch dark. They have nothing except for like a bag of sweets that they brought from like a candy shop over by the temple that they were going to eat inside of the fort. And so they're just like walking and holding these sweets, feeling their way like along the wall to try to find a way to get in. They look over and they can see like the reflection of some dog's eyes. He says there were three, four dogs who looked at him and did not bark at him. He says these weren't normal pets. And they see the dogs and they're expecting that the dogs are going to attack them. But the dogs like are just standing completely still. And they're almost like he says that it was like an eerie feeling like the dogs were like taunting them. Like, yeah, like, come in. We're not going to attack you. You can come in. And he was like, it was really strange. Like these weren't normal dogs. They seemed like they were like otherworldly dogs. So they go in and they're like walking around trying to look for a place that's flat where they can eat their treats and sit down. And uh, they all of a sudden, one of them trips on a rock. One of them tripped on a stone and they heard a loud voice and they thought it was one of them. They hear a scream, but it was not anyone in the group that screamed. It was like a scream that was off in the distance, like somewhere in the fort. And they all were just terrified and ran and like got the he fuck out. Half of them were ready to get the hell out of there because none of them had screamed. They were in the car. They were like, wow, that was so terrifying. But they had like all this adrenaline going and they, you know, that was like, that was really scary. And they open up the sweet bag. The sweet bag was like sealed. It had like a tape around it and it was sealed. And so they unseal it and they open it and something or someone had gone and taken all of their sweets and like crunched it in their hand. Like it was like molded to their hand. The sweets were packed really well. And when they ran, it wasn't like it was stirred from it. He said somebody had gone into those boxes and crushed the sweets. I don't know if you guys have ever had Indian sweets. It's like burfi and gulab jamuns and stuff. They're kind of like brownies made with milk. So it would be like someone took a brownie and like crushed it in their hand and it was in the shape of someone's fist, like as if someone had like had it in their palm and crushed it. And he was like, we were all so freaked out because there's no way, unless the person at the shop had sold it to them that way, but it, it couldn't have been because they watched the person put the sweets in there. Later, they were telling people about the story and other people had said that they, when they had gone there, like holes in their water bottles would happen or like their food or their whatever like drink that they bring in there would just seep out. I could see myself being a college kid wanting to break into a haunted town. I know when I was in college, it's very common in Los Angeles to drive to Las Vegas because we're not that far. It's like four hours away. And on the way to Vegas, there's a spot that you can turn off at that says um, Calico Ghost Town, mm -hmm. next exit. And it's 
it seems like it would be closer than it is. It's actually not. It's probably an, an additional 45 minutes to an hour off of the highway. The sign doesn't tell you that. So I did go to that town one time with one of my girlfriends while we were on our way to Vegas. And it's more of like a tourist, touristy location. Like they'll have people there that are dressed up that'll be like this used to be a gold mining town and now it's not and it's haunted and let's tell you about the haunted stuff and you can go to like a gift shop and get a magnet um so that's different but I do think that if there was a sign on the side of the road that was like this direction to get to your destination or this direction to get to a cursed ghost town I could see myself wanting to go to the cursed ghost town I mean obviously yeah. <laughs> when you're a college student, you're barely, you're still practically a teenager and you have that sense of, you know, that you are immortal. Nothing can ever harm you mm-hmm. and you are going to push that to its limits. And of course, does that mean you're going to go to a haunted ghost town in the middle of the night where everyone says you're not supposed to go and the government <laughs> says you'll die if you'll go in there? Yes. That's number one place yeah. on your list, of course. And it sounds like like the, the really weird description of the, like, the sweet being mushed into a hand shape it almost feels like something went to grab at them yeah and got just the brownie instead of (gasps) instead of the instead of the person or whatever I just realized that we are obviously an audio medium and I'm here acting out somebody (laughs) grabbing a brownie like everyone can see me but for for a listener's benefit I am I'm acting up a storm here you just can't (laughs) see it she is it was a weird story. My mom, when she was listening to it, she was like really spooked. Like the, the way the guy tells the story is really enigmatic and like interesting. So I hope I like it didn't get lost when I was telling the story. But someone commented on it underneath and uh, it was a user at Varun Sharma 3659 commented about five months ago. Basically, they were saying that they went to Bangar Fort and they didn't experience anything at the fort because they left at 7.30 p.m. or whatever. It wasn't like late enough. They um, didn't stay there, quote unquote, after dark, but they had like 40 people with them and they were in a big bus. And so they were kind of disappointed coming back from the fort of like, oh, is the fort? I don't think it's haunted because like we went and nothing bad happened to us. But then they were when they were going back to the town, they come to a fork in the road and the bus driver tells them, "Okay, we have an option here. This road that it goes straight back to the town has a bunch of thieves on it. And in the past, sometimes the thieves will like stop the bus and rob everyone on board. And the second path is just super haunted. He's like, so I'm just telling you, he's like, so I'm just telling you guys, like, which path do you want to take? And everyone's like, well, we don't want to get robbed. So I guess we'll just take the haunted path. And then he's like, okay, I told you. And so then they start going down the haunted path. And then there's uh, the bus breaks down because it gets like some sort of issue or whatever. And someone needed to go pee. So they like left the bus. And when they got out of the bus, they heard like weird noises and like strange whispering. And they were like, well, that's fucking weird. And then they got back on the bus. And then another bus showed up and broke down directly behind them. So some people were like, well, maybe you just heard whispering of like the other people on the broken down bus that was behind us. But I'm like, how the fuck were there two broken down buses on this haunted road? Right at the exact same spot. Yeah. And that's what everyone was saying is like, it was really strange that like two buses broke down on the exact same road. Now, I have a question for both of you. Would you rather go down a path with human robbers or go down a path (laughs) with a scary 
ghosts that you don't know what they're going to do. What do you what do you think you would choose? I'm going for the ghosts any yeah. day. Yeah. Ghosts 100%. I can I feel like I've seen enough horror movies that I can fight a ghost effectively. <laughs> I don't know if I can fight another human being. Yeah. There's a lot of things. There's a there's a lot of, you know, different varieties of human beings. And I don't know if I'm capable of fighting any of those varieties <laughs> of human beings. Yeah, I, I feel like, too, I get really scared of those, like, Halloween haunted houses or, like, the hay rides or whatever where you're on it and then, like, scary stuff happens. I get really, really terrified of those. But what I do is I just close my eyes and close my ears, too. So then it's like I'm not even there. And then before I know it, it's over. So you could yeah, do that. Exactly. Yeah, you could do that. But if you're getting robbed, like, you can't really do that and you're gonna get robbed like you're gonna miss all your trinkets and like all your cool stuff you got on your road trip yeah so you're like i might be possessed but at least i've got my trinkets oh god i'm a big fan of trinkets as everybody knows um i love miniature items every time i go to a new place i'm buying some type of figurine that i will probably never touch ever again but you cannot get that figurine away from me tsa you're not allowed to confiscate whatever i've purchased on my trip so i definitely feel that i also feel like the scariest part of going into those fake haunted houses or like here in Los Angeles, we have Universal Studios that turns into um, like a horror festival during Halloween, Halloween season or not scary farm and not scary farm yep. in California turns into like a Halloween version. And they have these people walking around in costumes and you go into a maze and they pop out at you. And yes, it's scary. But the thing actually that is more scary to me is the fact that I know they're not ghosts. They're people and people are unpredictable. Mm. And so what scares Mm. me about those types of attractions is like, what if the guy playing the headless horseman is a psychopath and he's not going to (laughs) just stop an inch from my face? What if he keeps going? Or what if one of what if like, I don't know. Also, the US. Yeah, there's a good horror film. Sorry, I'm called The Houses That October Built. Mm. Mm. I think it also has, it has another name, maybe Halloween Haunted House, something anyway. But the houses that October built will get you to it. And it is exactly about that. It's about the group of friends who decide to find the most terrifying haunted house attraction that they can find. And etc. You know, scary, Mm. scary shit happens, basically. And it's quite a good film. And it's how I feel. It's exactly how I feel about horror mazes and stuff as well. And I also don't know how I'm going to react if somebody jumps out at me and I go into fight or flight what if I go into fight and I just punch somebody square in the face because I (laughs) because I wasn't expecting it right this is the end of my episode um yeah I thought it was like a really interesting one because I had never heard it before and so as soon as I saw it in there I was like well this is kind of a a large undertaking because a lot of this is in a language that I don't understand so Thank you very much to Riffy, my mom, for helping to translate some of this. And I hope we got some access to some spooky stories that we might not have otherwise um, gotten to hear so in depth. Yeah, and I think it's so great because I've read the the Bangar Fort stuff, but obviously I'm only reading an, an English translation and it's exactly what you said. Yeah. I don't know what the original intent or the original meaning of the of the story was. I'm only relying on somebody's English translation. So it's lovely to be able to hear stories right. that have been translated directly. It's so good. Yeah. 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 Thank you for going the extra mile, Natalia. I'm sure it wasn't easy yeah. to 
you know, coordinate translation and find videos that you could tell were relevant, even if you couldn't understand them. So I really appreciate that you did that for us instead of just relying on like the Wikipedia blurb, which is very tempting sometimes when Wikipedia has (laughs) something. But like Emma said, you know, especially if you don't speak the language or if you're not from the culture like myself, I can't. I like sometimes I don't even want to touch those stories because I'm like, well, I don't know. Am I doing a disservice? Is there just some random person that translated this 10 years ago for a school project? And now that's been regurgitated all over the Internet and it's actually not accurate. And now I'm just perpetuating a story that's not real. So I'm very appreciative that we got this story. And I think it might actually be one of my favorite episodes of this season because it is bringing in a story that we wouldn't otherwise hear. Yeah, yeah. Well, Emma, would you like to do our sign off? We usually say, um, gotta go. And then you do like a callback to the episode, like, uh, gotta go buy a bunch of sweets and uh, duct tape them all together so no one can squish them with their ghostly hand. Yes. So do you remember, Emma, um, I don't know if you ever used like AOL Instant Messenger or AIM growing up, but we definitely did. And when you had to leave, you'd be like BRB or G2G. So it's BRB, gotta go, and then a callback to the episode. Okay. So just to be clear, I'm from rural Ireland. I barely had the internet. So, you know. (laughs) AOL Messenger, not my thing. Okay. <laughs> good for so, you. I'm going to, right, let me think of a good callback. Okay. So I'm going BRB, got to go, build my fort ridiculously high, ignoring the warning of the <laughs> mystical man that lives in the mountains and thus putting a curse on my entire community forever. Bye. Bye. <laughs>